Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Inside the IC. My guest today is Stephanie LaRue. She's the Chief of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your position, because it's a new position at ODNI. So we'd love to learn more about that. I was raised in Maryland. Uh, I come to the IC, uh, well, not to the IC, to ODNI. I'm on detail from CI. So I'm a CI officer. I've been there for about 11 years. I started my career, interestingly enough, in human resources. And then once I finished uh, law school and passed the bar exam, I transitioned to OGC. It was a little bit of a rough transition initially. Um, two kids and I hadn't practiced. I'd been at a law school for about a few years, two, three years um, before I actually went into OGC. So a little bit of a rough transition for me, but I went in, had a great time, met some really great people. Uh, and then my oldest son started uh, kindergarten. I have two little boys and uh, I kind of went through a really deep, like a, a soul searching <laughs> phase where I was trying to figure out kind of what, you know, whether or not I was happy because it, it I, you know, the daughter of immigrants too, never in a million years saw myself working at CIA, having a terminal degree, you know, work, none of that. But I was really unhappy and I couldn't figure out why, because, you know, I checked every box on my to-do list. And I realized because I wasn't doing my life's passion, right? I was leaving my kids. I couldn't be the mom I wanted to be. Uh, I say all the time, if I couldn't be the mom that I wanted to be, you know, that mom that was the last face my kid saw when he got on the bus and that first face he saw when he got off, if I couldn't be that mom, then the thing I left him to do needed to be my life's work. And I realized in that moment that it was not practicing law. It was diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility work. And so at the time at CIA, one of my mentors was the chief diversity officer. And I was talking to her about kind of my soul searching experience. And uh, she said, well, we need to rewrite DI, uh, CIA's diversity and inclusion strategy. You're a strong writer. You really believe in this kind of mission area. What do you think? So I applied for the job. I ended up getting it. And that's all she wrote from there. I've been doing this job for uh, over at CIA for about two, three years. And uh, while I was there, I founded the Latino Intelligence Network, which is almost like an employee resource group, like an ERG, but for the entire IC. And uh, the one that I founded was called the Latino Intelligence Network. So we had representatives from across the IC who served on this, this IC affinity network. We call them ICANs. And in that, I had the opportunity to brief the DNI on a number of occasions, and it just started a relationship. We got to talking. This position became available, and I ended up applying to the position, and I got the position, was very excited for that, and so we've been around kind of ever since. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's quite a journey, and good, good for you for doing that soul-searching and, and figuring out exactly what you wanted to do. And uh, obviously, you're right now in the perfect position. Tell us a little bit more about what the chief of DEI at ODNI does on a day-in, day-out basis. What, what are you focused on? Yeah, so uh, this job is really interesting. So a lot of the different IC elements, right? We have 18 different elements that make up the intelligence community. And my office is really unique in that we don't necessarily just do the DEIA for an individual element. So we're not doing diversity and inclusion for CIA, uh, or NRO or FBI, my office oversees the DEIA portfolios for the entire IC. 
So my job here, uh, the way I view it, is to be kind of the, the strategic implementer and integrator of DEIA across the intelligence community. So we are making sure that all of our diversity and inclusion and accessibility strategic plans are completed and that we're in lockstep with one another. Um, it's hard to do because everybody does things a little bit differently, but that's generally the mission of my office is to kind of to lead the implementation, the integration of the DEIA portfolios. We're focusing on four primary areas and those areas being data, so data collection, data analysis and reporting, partnerships, and the partnerships include both internal partnerships with the IC uh, and then external partnerships with colleges and universities and nonprofits. Um, so those types of partnerships. Um, we're also focusing a lot on the education piece. So educating people on things like empathy, on unconscious bias, on any new you know new topic that comes up that folks are interested in learning in. And then the last piece we talk about uh, and that we're investing a lot of money in is accessibility, right? So it's my office used to be just DEI, but recently, as of October 1 this year, we are now ICDEIA. So the accessibility portfolio now comes under my office, um, the ICDEI office as well. And so with accessibility, I mean, it's it's so broad, right? We're talking facilities, accessibilities, we're talking sign language interpreters, we're talking about service um, belief areas for service animals, um, I mean, just anything, hardware, software, anything you can think of, uh, you name it. So those are the four primary things that we're working on there at the office. But if I had to pick one that really is kind of the, the bread and butter right now, it's the data collection. Yeah, I, I've seen data collection come up a lot in the um, the demographics report that was just released uh, back in October, and we can definitely turn to some of the the data kind of gathering sides of that. But first, I wanted to ask, you know, there's a lot of interesting numbers in there that we can dig into, but if you were to stop someone on the street and just kind of, you know, tell them about what this report tells you about where the demographics of the IC stand, what would what would you highlight? <laughs> So my voice track for the ADR is we are not where we need to be, but we know where we need to go and we're working to get there, right? Period. Uh, when it comes to persons with disabilities, women and racial and ethnic minorities, we're not meeting any of our benchmarks, uh, which are the federal civilian workforce, the federal workforce, the civilian workforce, and the EEO 12% guideline for persons with disabilities. So we're not meeting any of those. Um, we're fluctuating, we get close, and then we have something like COVID happen, um, and so it's it's been challenging, but that that is my my voice track. If I had to summarize the entire <laughs> ADR in a sentence, yeah, I, I mean, I I think just starting out with minority representation, obviously it's increased steadily over over recent years, but it is still I think about ten percentage points from the federal benchmark. You know, and we, we should I should note that we're talking about the fiscal twenty twenty one. Report that is the latest report out of ODNI on these numbers. But what do you think are some some takeaways in terms of minority representation in, at the IC? What needs to change? Where do you think this is going? So you know, I don't think any one thing is going to solve this, right? I don't think it's taken us years to develop a situation that we're in right now, right? We've taken years to get here. It's going to take us years to dig ourselves out of this hole. So it's going to be slow. I also don't think it's going to be any one quick fix to to any of this, but. A lot of this, I think of, you know, for me, it has a lot to do with networks, right? So we spend a lot of time, We people can say whatever they want, that it's just, you know, 
the myth of meritocracy. Yes, you know, we would like all to, everyone would like to believe that meritocracy is how everyone gets to where they need to go, but that's not necessarily true, right? When you see that data like we see in the ADR, right, that certain demographics, their composition increases as the grade increases. And for other demographics, you see the exact opposite happening. There's got to be something else there, right? I don't know what that is. Uh, but we need to look into it. So these barrier analyses are incredibly important, sitting down and really figuring out why. Some people say it could be the networks, right? So racial and ethnic minorities do a really good job traditionally of networking laterally, right, with their peers, but they don't necessarily do a good job of networking above their, you know, above the, the chain. Uh, and so that could be, we know networking and sponsorships are really important. It could also, I mean, one thing I know it's not is that I hear all the time is some people say, well, oh, they don't want to be promoted to the CIS. They don't, you know, racial and ethnic minorities don't want to get to the senior ranks. I don't know where that narrative came from, but it could not be less true, right? So from what I am seeing, what am I hearing, people, racial and ethnic minorities do aspire to achieve these ranks. Um, and so there isn't that they're not getting there because they don't want to be there. That I, I haven't seen any data to prove that. Um, whatsoever. And it's also not that these folks aren't qualified, right? So, I mean, to get to into the IC, everyone's checked a certain number of boxes, right? Uh, and so, again, another narrative that we're dealing with is that these racial and ethnic minorities aren't qualified for these positions, and that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, I've taken a look at some data that indicates, that shows us kind of the number of degrees people have and what their background is. I've taken a look at a lot of data. We don't report on it all, but I have access to a lot of data that really shows that that is not necessarily the case either. And so I think what ends up happening is we produce this narrative that I think can be really damaging to the mental health of a lot of racial and ethnic minorities, right? We keep telling them, if you only did X, you would achieve Y, right? And so you have these folks who are doing every single thing and sometimes checking the box twice. Uh, and not having the same outcomes um, as, as some of their other peers. And so that's something we really need to look into. I don't know what the answer, what the one answer is, right? Because I think there are multiple places that we need to address, um, starting with kind of our hires, right? I mean, it's the whole talent development process. So uh, our outreach and recruitment, we're doing a pretty good job there. When you look at our data as to who is applying, we're very close to hitting the federal and civilian benchmarks with respect to who is applying for racial and ethnic minorities. The problem is when you look at the hires, we're seeing about a 9% delta between who's applying and who's hot, who's actually walking through the door in the IC. And that would necessarily be a problem, right? You don't expect everyone who applies to get into a job, right? But that 9% delta, we're not seeing that delta with persons with disabilities and we're not seeing it with women. So that also begs the question, you know, what is going on there? So that's kind of point one in the talent development cycle. Uh, and then you've got point two, you've got your promotions, you got what jobs these folks are being, you know, put into. Are they highly administrative jobs or are they analyst jobs? Are they operations jobs? And so what you see is the pool getting smaller and smaller and smaller throughout the process. And I think at the end of the day, that is what leads to one of the many things that leads to that really small pool of officers uh, that are GS-15s that can be, you know, promoted to that next level. Yeah, it seems like there are so many facets to that issue, and and it does seem like there's a significant gap for minorities between the five and twenty year time frame. Sort of folks are yeah. resigning at that five year time frame, whereas or really just leaving the IC, whereas the non minorities uh, would not be doing that at that point in time. Do, do you have any more insights or uh, analysis? Yeah, so you know. That five-year benchmark is kind of from across the IC, right? So we're kind of saying that attrition, this is across industry as well, not just the IC. We're seeing this in the private sector as well, that it's really hard to keep people past five years. And I think that makes perfect sense given this new generation of officer, right? So my parents' generation, baby boomers, my dad, 
started with the IRS and retired from there doing the same exact job 35 years later, right? That is not something that is appealing to me or to a lot of folks from younger generations, right? And so that bouncing around is very common for the generations. And so we are dealing with that. We're dealing with the fact that we are not able to pay people a lot. You know, we're, we're playing on there like, come serve your country, right? <laughs> but we're not, it's hard for us to be competitive. So it's hard for us to keep anyone after five years, particularly these, these younger generations who have such great skills that are, that they can get paid a lot more for um, on the outside. But with minorities specifically, one of the things we keep hearing from our IC affinity networks is that it's a lack of, of engagement, right? So a lack of opportunities. So with professional development opportunities, some folks are like for a long time, the IC, we've been spending time developing, doing leadership and executive training once officers get to the GS 14, 15, excuse me, level. But what we're finding is that we really need to start that that grooming of officers much earlier, right? One, because they're leaving after that five-year mark. Uh, and two, because if we don't start earlier, we're never going to get them to that pool where there are 14s and 15s, right? So we should start looking into doing this professional development and catching these officers and investing in them uh, when they're about a GS 8 or 9 when they come in, just to let them know that they're valued and help them kind of find their place. And so that's something that a lot of the elements have been really working on is taking that traditional notion of leadership development and not just focusing it on that higher GS-14 range, but backing it up significantly uh, to get to the more, more junior officers. It's an interesting strategy. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of pays off over the next uh, couple of years. Um, and this is interesting because you've got to look at this almost annually. I don't know, uh, just as an aside, do you have more, um, do, do you just kind of have to look at these things in annual chunks or do, do you track these things a little bit more closer than these public reports might show? Yeah. So I do look at the annual chunks because I'm looking, I'm interested in the trends, right? But my team and I were able to go a little bit deeper. We can go back to different elements and say, hey, we saw this one thing. Why do you think that is? But the, the big chunks are really helpful, especially when we're seeing, because we get each element's data individually. What we report out is the aggregate, right? But I can see, well, maybe, you know, CIA and DIA are seeing similar drops in one demographic category. What is it about what's going on there that is leading to a drop? Or what are they doing really well? So great example, DIA does a fantastic job, at least last year. Their data indicated that they were doing a great job um, hiring uh, Latino and African-American officers, right? And that was in comparison to the rest of the, the IC. And so that was really great. So the Latino Intelligence Network, they said, hey, we want to dig into this a little more. What is it that they're doing that is that is resulting in this? What is their process like that is resulting in this change? And how can we replicate that across the community, right? So we do get the ability to dig in a little deeper um, and then and assess those trends over time. Because, you know, a number without context means nothing, right? We really have to be able to compare apples to apples. Lots of people have questions about why we use the federal benchmark versus or the civilian benchmark. We have to use something. We can't just, you know, we have to pull a goal from somewhere, right? And again, that's Stephanie LaRue, Chief of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility for the intelligence community. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, 
Unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Stephanie LaRue, Chief of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility for the intelligence community. And then I wanted to turn to um, the numbers on women in the IC. You know, they comprise 39.5% of the IC workforce. And again, the greatest composition of, of women is at the one to five or the 20 or more years of service. Do you have any sense of what's going on there in particular? Is it similar issues in terms of just getting people earlier? Yeah, I do think it's a similar issue, right? With the generational, you know, getting getting folks to want, anybody to want to stay after five years, right? I think we're going to see that across the board across all three demographics. And I think that's more of a generational thing than we are, than anything else. And right now we can't collect that generational data to help us further understand that. Um, but that would be very helpful. But we're we're seeing the same thing. You know, we're we're interested in trying to do a number of additional studies to figure out exactly what's going on with women. We were anticipating kind of a huge drop in composition of women given COVID, um, but we weren't necessarily seeing the same numbers that the private sector was seeing with respect to kind of women leaving the workforce. Um, and we think that has a lot to do with how flexible the IC um, became once COVID hit, right? So we were allowing parents to take executive, um, excuse me, um, administrative leave, paid leave if they had to stay home because they had childcare or elder care or they were exposed. I mean, we were letting folks work all a variety of different shifts. I mean, people were, I mean, it was, we were, I have never seen the IC. I've only been there for 11 years, right? But I have never seen us kind of do a, such an about face. And I, I do think that you know, our ability. And we've maintained a lot of those things. Some of those things we couldn't anymore, right? Because we couldn't just, uh, you know, continue to allow folks to take excused absences for for COVID at this point. But um, a lot of the other rules and, and things that we implemented, those did stay back. And I will say, I think it's done a lot to change the culture of the IC, right? Because now we know that we can pivot this way. And so people now, you know, people are coming back to work and this is across all demographics. They say, well, we were able to, I was able to do some of my job from home or I was able to get my job done with this flexibility and I'd like to maintain that. And so what you're seeing are a number of senior leaders and officers across the IC really trying to be more accommodating and flexible for all officers, right, across the the community. So that I think is probably one of, I mean, I hate to say it's like a positive thing that came out of COVID because it was such a horrible thing, right, for for so many, myself included, right. But, you know, I really do think COVID changed the culture of the intelligence community so that we can be more um, flexible with respect to where we're doing some of our work. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. It, it seems like it's it's really changed the perspective of of work for a number of different sectors. I'm sure the IC more than more than any others, and it's hard for probably um, personnel to to hear. Oh, you actually have to come back to the office full time when they know that maybe they've been able to do their job pretty well on some sort of hybrid basis. Um, one other thing I wanted to just ask about with regard to the, the number on, on women in the IC is um, they continue to be hired at lower grades um, than men across the IC workforce. Um, is that kind of the IC federal version of, you know, the pay gap? 
Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what that is. We just don't call it that. Next year, I'm going to change the language that we can just call it pay equity, right? And pay gaps because so that we're more in line. But it is, right? And so, and I have no idea why that is. Again, I haven't done the deeper analysis to figure out like what is behind this piece of data right here. But it is hard for me to conceive uh, of of women coming in that that much that much lower in in grade um, than than their male counterparts. That that is a very interesting point. But it is, and it's something that you see reflected the whole way up, right? So with women, we're seeing that they're coming in at lower grades than men, and with PWDs, we're seeing that they are coming in at higher grades than uh, both minorities and women. Right. And so that was interesting, you know, but then when you look at the demographic, a lot of these folks have significant experience in the private sector before they decide to come into the IC. So it makes a little bit of sense. They're probably, you know, at this point, they are more able to manage some of their own needs. They know how to work a system in terms of like helping that system or working with that system to get what it is that they need to do their job as well. So it's it's really interesting that we're seeing that. But that women that that popped out to us. I remember when we saw that this year, we were like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> it's like, because you hear the anecdotes, right? You hear all the people say, well, like I came in as a seven and this guy right next to me came in as an eight. And but it's so different when you have the data from across the entire intelligence community that shows you, yeah, you know, this was not a one off. Like this might be more of a systemic issue that we have to take a look into. So maybe expect to see a little bit more on maybe why that's happening in, in next year's uh, version of the of the report or in the future. That's my goal, right? So with the annual demographic report, with the way Congress wants these things is they really, from my understanding, they're just looking for the numbers, right? They want to know where are we, but it's not really the annual demographic report isn't necessarily the why, right? It's not, it's not a, you know, it's not the barrier analysis study. So I think it would be something separate and apart from the annual demographic report, but I do really want to figure out that why, but you know how that goes. We have to get the staffing. We've got to get lots of other folks to look into this um, more fully and it's, it's going to be worth it. Got it. All right. I did want to also turn to something that jumped out in the report, and this was a decrease in the percentage of uh, persons with disabilities in the IC workforce. And I know there were some data issues there too. Can you kind of explain what's going on there? Yeah, so first thing with the data issue, so we modernized the way we collect the data with respect to persons with disabilities. We, we created additional fields for people to put in. We clarified a lot of the thing, a lot of the, the fields as well for officers. And so we think that might have actually increased the number of people who identified. Um, and so that there was one that one data piece there. I was really interested because, you know, like I would have expected the data to show us when we were speaking about women earlier. I was expecting the data to show us that women were leaving the IC, you know, but in fact, they weren't. I was expecting our COVID response to actually be better for persons with disabilities because we had now moved to virtual meetings and doing things on the low side more. And, and that we didn't see that, right? We saw the exact opposite of that with these two demographics, which was really fascinating to me on this end. But I don't I don't know with that demographic. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? We were so close. We're so close to that guideline. And I will tell you, I think one of the reasons we've been so successful, we are that is the, the the target that we are the closest to, right? Is persons with disabilities. And I really do believe it's because we have that EEO benchmark that like you're gonna get this 12%. This is your benchmark, and they've communicated that across the federal workforce. And if you've seen and you've seen the entire federal government kind of throw their weight behind this and saying, you know, we need to get this done. And so everyone is working to hit that 12%. And so 
you know, sometimes of being an attorney, right, you know, you have to be very careful. There's benchmarks and quotas and quotas are illegal, right? Yeah, they are, but benchmarks aren't, right? And we can see that with certain demographics, it really has helped. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think we're going to get back to where we need to be with that 12%. But the goal is not just to get to that 12%, because that's a floor, right? Like we need to exceed that 12% so that we can reflect the America we serve. And right now we don't with respect to any group. Yeah, I, and particularly with with uh, people with, with disabilities, are you finding that agencies are are taking that seriously? Uh, I mean, I know there's always the you know the mission that comes first, and, and in certain positions, it might not be possible to accommodate folks. But are, are they really going uh, all in on on finding ways that they can in situations where it's possible? Yes, I, I can say that unequivocally. You know, we're not perfect, right? There's a lot of things that we're not doing you know, as well as we can, but with the accessibility, I think our understanding of the accessibility issues is incredibly mature, right? So we now have a senior accessibility officer for the entire IC, and she, this person right now is responsible for coordinating all of those efforts across the community. There's a community of practice. If you look at a lot of IC elements, they have an accessibility branch-ish of sorts, right? And this is separate and apart from reasonable accommodations. And these folks are looking into card captioning. We have a sign language operations center, um, folks who are doing walkthrough of spaces to find out physically whether or not those spaces are actually accessible. We have training that will replicate what it's like to be a low vision or blind officer. It's a virtual reality training, you know, every single day. What is that experience like? Uh, and so I will say the IC has a very good understanding of the problems and they've thrown a lot of resources behind really trying to make sure that we are where we need to be. But this is such a big issue. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, even the alarm systems, right? They have to be both, you know, visual and aud auditory because you have to make sure both folks can see them. And it's not just, you know, the regular 508 compliance. Again, that's a floor. We need to go above that. Uh, but I will say that I see, I mean, that is one thing I can say we have done very, very well is really understand. We've done an IC maturity model for the IT, which is really cool. And it's helped us understand specifically kind of with respect to hardware and software, where we are with accessibility. Uh, and, and it's, you know, we, again, we are not where we need to be, but we know where we need to go. Right. And we're working toward that. Got it. One thing you mentioned at the top, how, uh, is how data is one big effort underneath uh, your office. And um, I know that the demographics report mentioned that as well. You're changing how you collect data on DEI and A and, and technology, I guess, is also help, helping out a little bit. I know there's a lot of um, tech out there to help with data gathering and analysis these days, but what are, what are you doing there? What gaps exist and what are you trying to change? Yeah. So I am obsessed with data. Uh, I, because I feel like it just, there's so much there, right? And so one of the biggest gaps right now, we have a bunch of gaps, right? So we'll start with, we're not collecting on veteran status, not every single element. And that's a huge part of our workforce with very distinct needs, right? So we're not collecting that for every single element. We're not necessarily collecting SOGI metrics, so social, sexual orientation, gender identity metrics, right? And if we were to collect it, we don't necessarily have the trust of all of these IC elements so that they will openly report these things, right? So we have issues not only with, you know, what types of data we're collecting, right? We want to collect that type of data. But we also have other gaps in terms of who is reporting what and how. So each element, there is no authoritative HR data source, right? Everybody collects data in their own HR database and they report it their own way. And so we have to streamline that, right? Because if you look at the ADR, you'll notice that not every graph and statistic you see includes all 18 elements. 
there'll be a caveat there that says, well, this includes X number of the 18 elements. And this includes X number because we don't get all the answers from all of the people from, from all of the elements. And so that makes the analysis a lot harder to do as well. So we're really trying to clean all of that up. But the more exciting piece of the data that I'm excited about is that we are really moving to start doing intersectional data analysis, right? Because every single one of us knows that you are not just one part of your identity. Uh, and I think that's incredibly important. So if you were to look at our, our numbers for women, women who are in the cis positions or who are in the senior ranks, the number looks pretty good in comparison to their composition, right? Like we're super close, but that's not true for black women in the IC, right? That's not true for trans women. That's not true for women with disabilities. And so until we can really parse that number out a little bit more, we're not really gonna be able to get to what it is that we need to start doing, where we need to start program, you know, dedicating resources for programming. So that intersectional data analysis is gonna be incredibly important to really help us understand our workforce better um, and, and where we can, you know, and where we need to step up our game. Uh, yeah, it seems really important to have, you know, all that context, as you mentioned, one piece of data without context is is not um, particularly useful. Um, and, and you mentioned this at the start of your answer, there is a, a point in the report that said there is a lack of applicant data from some components. You know, are, are you kind of cracking, you know, the, the whip a little <laughs> bit with the agencies to get them to be better about sharing data going forward? Yeah. Uh, how is that? How is that working out? I would tell you, most of the elements are really good about sharing their data with us. You know, I think they get, you know, they know that this is a community wide effort. Right. Um, and they're smart enough to also know that if that this is a way we get additional resources for this mission area, you know, so I, I think they're smart enough to know that. But, but a lot of them are getting in line. I think the bigger issue is just, you know, with the government, everything takes longer. This isn't an, it's an online database that has to be completely retooled. And we have to, you know, who's going to do it? And we're going to either hire someone to come out and do it. or We're going to put out a statement of work and this is going to take good, you know, God knows how long. And so I think it's more, you know, us biting or you know, shooting ourselves in the foot because of our processes. Right. And so I think that is the bigger issue. But I will say that every single element is aware of that issue. So we have an IC, a monthly IC chief diversity officer council meeting where we are talking about these types of things. So the chief diversity officers are then meeting with kind of the human resources officers for their elements and the facilities officers and the security folks, the natural DEI weave through all of those different mission areas. And so, you know, theoretically, as an HR office is considering moving to a new database or collecting data in a new way, you know, they will have that insight from the chief diversity officer that says, hey, we would really be interested in collecting this type of data. Um, and I say, you know, my office, we've been, so the relationship between ICHC, which is human capital, and ICDEIA, my office has really been, I think it's been quite fantastic. Um, we used to have multiple data calls throughout the year, and the elements would have to reply to multiple data calls. But this year, we're only we've only done one data call, and both of the sets of data are included in one, which is just streamlining a process, right? Like it's you know it's such a simple idea, um, but we partner together to make sure that we're all collecting and tracking and reporting the same information, um, and that too will give us that row level data, right? Not just the aggregate; it'll give us that row level data so that we can do that intersectional data analysis um, over time. Got it. All right. Well, I guess I'm wondering, you know, do you have any observations now that you've worked this issue at the CIA and now that you're at ODNI kind of looking across the intelligence community? Is that, you know, affirmed anything for you or changed your perspective on anything with regard to the challenges that you're facing here? It's definitely affirmed um, my, my experiences. So looking at all of the IC now, I'm not just looking at CIA's DEIA portfolio. 
but now I can see everyone's and everyone is pretty much in the same boat, right? Everyone's in the same boat. And I think the biggest issue that we are seeing is our culture, right? We really need a fresh start with respect to the culture in the IC, um, because you've got some elements that are throwing all kinds of money and resources and massive teams behind this, but they'll still only be as successful. I mean, you can have multiple strategies, right? But culture is strategy for lunch every single day. And so what I'm seeing is whether or not you have an element that's very poorly resourced or element that's really that's resourced really well, you know, we're still struggling with that culture. And then the idea is that if we can continue to educate the workforce and on why this mission area, how it drives mission, we think that's really going to help help with the culture shift. Um, but it, it, seeing it at this level really did affirm that for me. And do you feel that folks are truly taking this issue, you know, seriously? Uh, we talked about this just before we started the interview, but not everyone necessarily might view this as a top priority for the intelligence community. But um, are, are you finding the engagement is there? not just within the folks who are working DEI and A on a day-in and day-out basis, but you mentioned a good relationship with human capital, but across kind of the, the both support and mission areas. So I will say I am very lucky in that I, I, I personally am benefiting from really great relationships and being able to get things done, right? So I report to the DNI. There's nothing between she and I, right? It's like, you know, I'm connected to the people and then I talk to her and I'm like, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what my recommendation is. And that's been really great. And and I will say that there are a number of other directors across the IC who are just as passionate as the DNI about this area, about DEIA, right? Um, They're just as passionate. I think a lot of folks don't necessarily know how to take that to the next level, right? They're looking for someone to operationalize this for them because this is not their mission area, right? These people are brilliant in some other you know topic and and that's what they're there to do they're not there to know this but it's made it harder because our chief diversity officers for a lot of them even myself i didn't have any experience being a chief diversity officer before serving in this where i was doing strategy but we don't hire for this from the outside the federal government does not have a job series for diversity and inclusion practitioners and so what you're getting are people who are very good in other areas and then bringing that talent to dei but there's still a learning curve. And so what you're seeing is that there's this massive variance in the expertise and approach to DEIA work from across the community, right? And so I think a lot of these directors are probably looking for ways to operationalize it, but don't necessarily know how, uh, and or they might have a chief diversity officer who might not necessarily know the how, right? Um, Or exactly what, what they can do. But there is also still a lot of opposition. Some people just still don't get that this is mission. They don't understand that if we don't get this right, you know, we could end up paying the ultimate price. And, you know, so they they still don't understand that. And so we're really trying to get folks to understand that this is not something separate and apart from mission. This is not a side hustle, right? This is, if we don't get this right, we're not doing our jobs, right? Because our jobs, we're, our job, we're here to promote national security, right? To protect the American people and inform policymakers with objective analysis. And if we can't create environments where people feel comfortable saying what they have to say and, you know, challenging certain ideas in certain spaces. If they don't feel comfortable doing that, um, if we don't have the diversity of thought at the table. We're not we're not going to be able to do our job the way that we want to do our job. And so I think getting getting folks behind that um, and using that narrative, I think, is going to be be helpful. But I like I said earlier, you know, I don't think I don't think necessarily, you know, the DEIA professionals for a long time, we were making the business case, right? So what's the business case for diversity and inclusion? And I'll tell you, nothing pisses me off more than having to hear that, right? So like, I shouldn't have to 
to give you a business case for treating me with decency and respect, right? I shouldn't have to give you that. And so I, I don't think that that was the right approach, right? So I think the, the the right approach here is to show people how this is mission, right? Show people how, you know, a lot of folks are doing this every day and they don't even know it, right? I had a guy in operations and he was like, I don't have time for this DEI crap. Like I'm working mission. I'm like, yeah, cool. Okay. Well, you know, I grabbed a marker. I'm a visual learner. And I asked him to describe his last operation for me, right? And I'm marking it on the board. I went to this place. I brought in this person. I read this. I did that. And every place along the line, I'm like circling areas where he was practicing inclusion, whether he brought someone else in, whether he held a meeting, whether he did it both virtually and in person, you know, just all of these different places. And I told him like, you are practicing inclusion every single day, right? But no one has framed it for you in that way. It's not just cultural events. It's not a food tasting, right? That's not what this work is. It is how you're weaving this into everything you do. And that having that conversation with folks, I think has been much more helpful to getting people to really understand how they can operationalize this and execute this in their nine to five. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like an important uh, point to make that it's it's not just a, a thing that you tack on, right? It's it's yeah. kind of got to be weaved into every day. Well, Stephanie LaRue, she's the Chief of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Thanks so much for coming on Inside the IC. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.